If you have a Bible with you tonight, would you please turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. The last division of that book will be 2 Peter chapter 3. Once again tonight, by the providence of God, we're able to come together in the premises here at White Oak. And I'm thankful to be able to be here to, to speak and present a, a message from God's Word. And it's great to be able to present such a lesson to people who have an interest in what the Bible has to say. We're blessed tonight to have visitors from the area, and we're thankful for each one of you. You are an encouragement to the White Oak Brethren here. You're an encouragement to me as well. We have some gospel preachers with us tonight, and I would love to sit at their feet and listen and learn. In the near future, Lord willing, that will happen. But we certainly appreciate the presence of all who are here. As Brother Steve indicated, we'll have our final service of this meeting tomorrow night. And I know if you are a member of a congregation elsewhere in this area that you have responsibilities there, but we want to ask you to do something. If you're going to be back with your home congregation tomorrow, you need to have someone come and take your place here, okay? So we can have just as many tomorrow night. In our lessons this week, as Brother Jim has indicated, we've been talking about things that are the greatest. And we want to continue that tonight. We've talked about the past. We've talked about the present. And we've made reference to the future. Well, tonight in our lesson, our eyes are turning to the future. And of course, it's through the message of God's Word that our lesson will be guided tonight. Throughout the world, there are a lot of people with big plans for the future. Right here in Hamilton County, there must be people who are planning their weddings. That's going to be a great day in their life. But that's not the greatest day in the future of the human race. And right now, there are young couples who are preparing and they're waiting now for the birth of their first child that will make their parents grandparents for the first time. What a great event that's going to be. But no, that's not going to be the greatest event in the future of the human race. Right now throughout the world, athletes are preparing themselves for the next Olympics. And we will be awed at the athletic ability and the skill and the power and all the teamwork that we'll see in those upcoming Olympic events. And records, no doubt, will be broken. But those broken records or athletic performances, those won't be the greatest event or greatest day in the future of the human race. And throughout the world, there will be countries who will be blessed when corrupt leaders are taken out of office or voted out of office and, and better people from a moral point of view are put into office, that will be a blessing to those nations, a blessing to those societies, and a blessing to the world. But the election of those new leaders in foreign countries or in our country, that's not the greatest event or the greatest day in the future of the human race. We sang tonight through Brother Pell's leading. Songs that focused on the future of the human race and the greatest day in the future of the human race. As we sang in our first song tonight, there's a great day coming. For some, as the song says, it's going to be a day of gladness, a day of brightness. 
For others, as the song says, it's going to be a day of sadness. And when you think about it, for you and for me personally, whether or not that day is a day of gladness or a day of sadness, well, that's all up to you and me and whether or not we are prepared for that day. Let's begin it out by thinking, first of all, about some Bible descriptions of the greatest day in the future of the human race. Now, why have I chosen 2 Peter chapter 3 as our beginning place tonight? Because in 2 Peter chapter 3, we find some of those Bible descriptions. Look, if you would, in 2 Peter chapter 3, we read the idea that there would be scoffers, doubters, mockers coming in the last Days. Look in your Bible, if you would, there in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 4. Verse 3, starting in verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. As you and I read verse number 4. And we read that terminology, the promise of His coming. We know the word His is a pronoun in reference to someone. And so we step back tonight and we ask the question, in the setting or context of chapter 3, when the scoffers would ask the question, where is the promise of His coming? Whose coming are they mentioned? We look back at verse number 2 at the end of the verse and we read about the commandment of the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So when we read then in verse number 4 a reference to His coming, it's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus. We know from the New Testament record that Jesus came into the world and lived as a human. The Bible says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 and verse 14. And so Jesus already came into the world one time, lived as a human, was known as Jesus of Nazareth. But in verse number 4 of 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's not looking to the past at Jesus' first coming as a human. Rather, he's looking to the future that greatest day in the future of the human race when Jesus will come again. And here the reference in verse number 4 is simply called His coming. Drop down in the same chapter and look at verse number 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition, of ungodly men. Now in verse 4, the reference is to His coming. And the time when the Lord comes again will be the same time that is described in verse number 7 as being the day of judgment. And then you drop down in the same setting in verse number 10. Look at the opening words in verse 10. But the day of the Lord, and then verse number 12 looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day 
of God. And so here in one small section of Scripture, beginning in verse 4 and going through verse 12 of chapter 3 in the book of 2 Peter, there are at least four Bible descriptions of the greatest day in the future of the human race. One description is verse 4, His coming, the Lord's coming. The New Testament often talks about Jesus coming in the future. It's also called His revelation or His appearing. In verse 7, it's called the day of judgment. In verse 10, it's called the day of the Lord. And in verse 12, it's called the day of God. In this context, in this setting, all four of those descriptions are speaking about the same day's events. Now, elsewhere, that is in other Bible verses, the greatest day in the future of the human race is also described as the last day. It is on the last day that Jesus will judge all people. It is on the last day that people will raise people from the dead. So throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, there are a number of descriptions which point to the same day in the future of the human race. Well, how certain is it? How much of a guarantee is it that Jesus really will come again? Perhaps you've heard it said. Perhaps you've heard it said in a class or maybe you've read it that the theme of, of the Bible is the coming of the Christ. Well, when you think about the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets pointed to the time when the Christ or the Messiah would come into the world as the Savior of the world. And we read in the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that the Messiah came, and we also read in those books, as we do in the other books of the New Testament, that the Messiah not only came, but He will come again. Now, His purpose in coming won't be the same as when he came the first time, but God willing, we'll have more to say about that in just a few moments. Again, how certain is it that Jesus will come again? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as he was together with his chosen apostles, he knew that he would soon be taken away from them. And he knew that they would be filled with great sorrow. And so that last night that he was together with them, the night before he was crucified, he said many things that we would consider to be words of encouragement, words of comfort. In fact, he talked about he would go away, but he would send the helper or the comforter to comfort them and help them and teach them and guide them. On that occasion, according to John 14, beginning in verse number 1, what did Jesus say to those apostles? He said, ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That where I am, there ye may be also. John 14, 
verses 1 through 3. So what did Jesus say? Jesus said, if I go away, I will come again. Did he go away? Did he go to the Father? You know he did, which means his promise will be fulfilled and he will come again. At the very moment that Jesus was being taken up into the clouds, we read in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus had been with his apostles. After his resurrection from the dead, he remained on the earth for a period of 40 days. And during that period of 40 days, he often revealed himself to his followers. He continued to teach his followers about the coming kingdom. And as we read in Acts 1 and verse 8, he's told the apostles that they shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and they'll be witnesses unto Jesus. They'll be witnesses unto Jesus in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And as Jesus was saying those things, we read in verse 9 that he was taken up in a cloud into heaven. Two men or two messengers of God spoke to the apostles who were watching the Lord being taken up. And their message to the apostles was, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? For the same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him taken up into heaven. Acts 1 and verse 11. And so Jesus' statement to the apostles was, if I go away, I will come again. And the word of those messengers to the apostles was, this Jesus who was taken up shall so come in like manner. Is it a certainty? Is it a guarantee that Jesus will come again? You better believe it. Now, we'll not take the time tonight. But if you wanted to just settle down, if you wanted to settle down or bunker down in a couple of New Testament books and spend time reading those books and being on the lookout for references and instruction about the second coming of Jesus, we would suggest you might consider studying the book of First Thessalonians and the book of Second Thessalonians. It's interesting, just as we're passing on, it's interesting in our Bibles in the English Bible, the way the, that book is divided into five chapters, right at the end of every chapter, either the last verse or almost the last verse of every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, there's a reference to the future coming of Jesus. Is it a certainty? Yes, sir. Jesus came to live in the flesh, and the Bible teaches that he will come again. Well, here's a question of great interest to a lot of people. Why not? Well, when's that going to happen? Okay, well, we've looked at some Bible descriptions of that great day. We, we've looked at some passages that indicate the certainty of that greatest day in the history of the human race. But what about the time element? I think it's just natural that throughout history, people have wondered, when is it going to happen? And sadly, some individuals have gone from wondering into fantasizing about when that's going to be. And as those people have fantasized and hypothesized about when that's going to happen, 
Unfortunately, they have been able to influence the thinking of other individuals so that often what we hear about the time of the Lord's coming is often very foreign to the teaching of the New Testament. Look, if you would, in the book of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. It's quite common in religious settings to hear messages about Matthew 24 in connection with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Well, the coming of the Lord Jesus is referenced in Matthew chapter 24. As Jesus was leaving the temple with his apostles, they pointed out to him how magnificent the temple was. And Jesus indicated to them that the time was coming that that not one stone of the temple would be left on top of another. In other words, Jesus was talking about the coming destruction of that physical structure. Now we're told from, from Mark chapter 13. Now I'm staying in Matthew 24, but in Mark 13 we're told that when Jesus left Jerusalem, and got out east of the city and sat down with his apostles on the Mount of Olives, that those four former fishermen, they had a question. And the question, or actually multiple questions, look in your Bible in verse number 3, chapter 24 and verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, Tell us when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world or of the end of the age? And Jesus answered those inquiries. And as you and I read what he says, drop down in this chapter, if you would, and, and mark in your mind the message we read in verse number 34. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, this generation, that is, the generation of Jesus in the first century. Jesus said, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And so those matters about which Jesus had spoken to them, matters of earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, Jesus said, these things will take place before the current or present generation of his time has passed away. And so the references here then to destruction are not talking about the end of the planet earth. Rather, they're a reference to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 which took place when a Roman general by the name of Titus led the Roman army in destroying that place. And so again, everything up through verse 34, Jesus said those things are going to happen or be fulfilled during that generation. But look at verse 36. Verse 36, the same opening. But of that day and hour, Knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now he's not talking about something that's going to happen in their generation. Now he's looking to his future coming. 
And if you believe what Jesus said, if you believe what Jesus said, then when it comes to the time element of the greatest day in the future of the history of the human race, no man knows the hour or the day. Now, a lot of people have put forth a lot of effort to guess when that coming would be. And you know what? Those people have been wrong every time. Someone predicted being 1843. Didn't happen. Hey, let's go back and recalculate. It should be next year, 1844. Didn't happen. I remember in the late 1980s, we were living in, in Taiwan at that time. And, and in South Korea, some denominational preacher convinced the people with whom he was working that Jesus was going to come on a certain day. I think the date at that time was supposed to have been sometime in October, and I believe the year was 1988. And so, for some reason, he collected the material possessions okay, and money from those people. And then later he did some prison time. Because what? Because he deceived them in that fashion. If we'll just accept what Jesus said, we won't be deceived. Because he said, of that day and of that hour, no man knows. Drop down in the same chapter. Listen to more of what Jesus said to the apostles. Verse number 42. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be also ready, for in such an hour as you think, as you think not, rather, the Son of Man cometh. So, so the appeal is to be ready. But the appeal also is, don't waste your time trying to calculate when it's going to be. Don't waste your time thinking about so-called signs. There are no so-called signs given in Matthew 24 about the time of the Lord's coming in the future, which will be the day of judgment. The signs given were in connection with the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish state. That's why we read in other Bible verses in 2 Peter 3, if we had read in more detail, we would have read in 2 Peter 3 that the day of the Lord or the coming of the Lord is like a what? Thief in the night. Okay? So it's coming, but we don't know when it's going to happen. You say, well, why wouldn't God tell us? Well, how much does God know? God knows everything, right? And God, by His infinite wisdom, has decided to reveal certain things to humans through His Word. And God has also decided by His infinite wisdom that it's best not to reveal some things to humans. And so those things are what we read in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. Those are the secret things which belong unto the Lord. May I emphasize as we pass on. The New Testament emphasis is not on the time of His coming. The New Testament emphasis is on being ready when that time gets here. And so the message of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 is, Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. But what about the manner of Jesus coming? 
that greatest day in, in, in the future of the human race. How is he going to come? Look with me, if you would, over in the book of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you about what we already mentioned. From Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, we remember that, that those messengers told those apostles who were watching Jesus being taken up in a cloud. The message was, this same Jesus, whom you've seen taken up into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him taken up into heaven. So he's going to come in the same fashion that he went up. Was that visible? It was. And his coming will be visible as well. Now, apparently some of the Christians in Thessalonica were concerned. Maybe some went beyond being concerned. Maybe some of them were disturbed. And the thought seems to be, hey, what about those Christians who have already passed away before Jesus comes again? Those Christians who have already left this world before Jesus comes again, are they going to miss out on the glory of the Lord when he comes? Are they going to miss out on all those blessings that God has for his people? And so Paul responds to that and gives us some very insightful information about the Lord's coming. Here at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's start in verse 13. Verse 13, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Verse 14, but if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. In other words, those who are sleeping in Jesus are which people? He'll rename them in a moment. He will refer to them as the dead in Christ. It's those members of God's family who have passed from this life. Now, verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, or as the New King James says, shall not precede them which are asleep. Now look at verse 16. Because we're asking, how is the Lord going to come? And we've already seen it's going to be visible. But look at verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so the dead in Christ described there in verse 16, those are the same ones back up in verse 14 that are called those who sleep in Jesus. But as we think about the manner of his coming, when you look at verse 16, what does the Bible say? That the Lord himself shall descend. Now, throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, throughout the Bible, we sometimes read about the Lord doing something, but He did not do it directly. Rather, He did it through someone else. For example, at times we read that God delivered the children of Israel. We also know that God, by the hand of Moses, delivered them. 
In fact, back in Matthew chapter 24, there's a reference not only to the Lord's future coming, there's a reference in Matthew 24 to the Lord's coming, which has a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus came in destruction of Jerusalem through the Roman armies. I'm simply saying there are multiple times in the Bible when the Bible says the Lord did something, but when you collect all the information, you know he did it through human agents. Okay? We use that language in referring to ourselves. Somebody calls us and says, hey, I asked you to send me something. And you say, well, I mailed it three or four days ago, but you weren't the one who actually went to the post office to mail it. Maybe your grandchild did it, or maybe your wife or husband did it, but you get the picture. But in verse 16, the Lord himself shall descend. He's not sending an ambassador. He's not sending a representative. It will be the Lord himself. It'll be visible. It will be personal. And it will not be silent. Somehow some people have the idea that when the Lord comes again, nobody's going to know about it. It's just going to be silent. You know, sometimes you'll see like if you see this car without a driver, you know, it's been silently taken away. When you look at verse number 16, that's a pretty noisy verse, right? There's a lot of noise in that verse. There's going to be a shout. There's going to be the voice of the archangel, and there's going to be the trump of God. It's not going to be a silent occasion, okay? That's how the Lord is going to come. Now, What's going to happen on that day? What are some of the great events that are associated in the Bible with that greatest day in the future of the human race? Well, first of all, let's note a couple of things that will not happen on that day. Jesus will not come to again dwell in a physical human body. That's not going to happen. On that great day when Jesus comes again, he will not set up his kingdom on the planet earth. In fact, when you and I study our New Testaments, we find that Jesus' kingdom has already been established. And if you've been born again into the family of God, if you're a member of the Lord's church, you are already in the Lord's kingdom. In Colossians chapter 1, which we guesstimate was written sometime between A.D. 61 and A.D. 63. Paul was in prison in Rome at that time for at least two years. And during that time, he wrote at least four New Testament epistles. One of those was the book of Colossians. And as he's writing Colossians chapter 1 in verse number 12, he talks about, thanks be to God, Paul prayed for them. And then he talks in verse number 13, God had done something for them. What was it? God had delivered them from the power of darkness and translated or conveyed them into something. What was it? The kingdom of his dear son. Question. If God had brought them out of darkness and brought those Christians in Colossae into the kingdom of Jesus... If that was true, should we conclude that if they were already brought into Jesus' kingdom, that Jesus' kingdom already existed? You better believe it. Someone calls you, and you don't want to answer the phone now, but it keeps ringing. 
Somebody's supposed to shut it off, but it didn't happen. Your phone keeps ringing. Somebody says, where are you? You say, I'm sitting in the White Oak Church building. Question. How can it be true that you are in the White Oak Church building? The only way that can be true is if the White Oak Church building exists. Right? In the same way, the only way those saints in Colossae could be in the kingdom was that the kingdom already existed. The kingdom of God was established on the day of Pentecost, about which we read in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus is not coming to take on human flesh. And Jesus is not coming to establish his kingdom. Well, why is he coming? Well, look at your Bible again in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. Verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Verse 16 says the dead in Christ shall what? Shall rise. When? First. doesn't mean the first day of the week. But first, first in comparison with what? Sometimes people talk about one resurrection happening at one time in the future, and then later, hundreds or thousands of years later, a future resurrection. And they say, you see, here in verse number 16, or rather verse 17, the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. But you need to step back and ask the question. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what two groups of humans is Paul describing? He's not describing the righteous in contrast to the unrighteous. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he's talking about the righteous. Some righteous are already dead when the Lord comes again, and some righteous will still be alive when Jesus comes again. That's the two righteous, that's the two groups of people about which he's speaking. In contrast to those who will still be alive when Jesus comes again, the dead in the Christ will do what? Shall rise first. Now, would you like to know when that's going to happen? I'm going to tell you exactly when it's going to happen. So there'll be no doubts ever again in our mind, as long as we can remember. When will the dead in the Christ be raised? Here's the exact answer. Jesus said it at the last day. That's the exact answer. You say, when's the last day? The Bible doesn't tell us. So look at these two things. Jesus said, and we, we mentioned this, what was it, last night or the night before? I think it was last night. As we were reading in John chapter 6, Jesus said, except the Father which sent me draw him, no man can come to me, and I will raise him up, what, at the last day. So the last day, that's the time of the resurrection. You say, you mean only the righteous will be raised? No, the unrighteous will be raised as well. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming into which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. John 5, 28 and 29. And so on that great day, the greatest day, in the future of the human race, there will be a resurrection of the dead. You say, what about those who aren't dead? You say, everybody's going to be dead. No, not everyone will be dead. 
If Jesus came back in two minutes from now, if Jesus were to come back in two minutes from now, would everyone on the earth be dead? You say, no, there'd be seven plus billion people still alive. That's right. So that will be the exception to the rule. But in addition to the resurrection of the dead, what else is going to happen? Well, think in your mind. What else did Jesus say would happen on the last day? Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him when? The last day. John 12 and verse 48. So what do you have? You have the resurrection of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked on the very same day. The last day. And so there's no such thing as a resurrection and judgment for one group of people, and then a thousand or a thousand and seven years later, a judgment for another group of people. There's the day of judgment, it's the last day, and it'll be a day of resurrection, and then a day of judgment. Somebody says, I don't think I want to be raised. It's not an option. We're going to be raised. Somebody said, I don't think I want to be judged. It's not an option. We'll be judged. What do we read in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So why, why is Jesus going to be the judge? The reason Jesus will be the judge is because the Father appointed him or chose him for that task. You remember what Paul was preaching in Athens? We read in Acts 17, beginning in verse number 30, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Wherever, and then he, say, he goes on to say that, that God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. So the one who's going to do the judging is the one whom the Father has ordained. And the one who's going to do the judging is the one who has been raised from the dead. And the time of the judging will be when the Father has already circled it on his calendar. God has appointed a day. So what's going to happen on that, that greatest day in the future of the human race? There'll be a resurrection of the dead. There'll be a judgment. There'll be a, a, a handing up of the kingdom to the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul spoke about the resurrection, Jesus, the first fruits from the dead, and then we will also be raised. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24, Then cometh the end when he will have what? Given up the kingdom to the Father. Don't you want to be in the kingdom? If the kingdom is going to be given over to the Father, don't you want to be in the kingdom? Of course you do. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 5 and verse 23 that Jesus is the Savior of what? Savior of the body or the church or the citizens of his kingdom. And then we briefly saw it, but we didn't stop there to read it. Something else is going to happen on that occasion. According to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 or 10 through 12, this old planet Earth, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed by fire. Now, those are the events that are going to happen. Now, why is that day so significant? Well, it's the first time that all humanity will be gathered on one occasion. And the judge will not be a human that's capable 
of being bought off or corrupted and not capable of making mistakes. The judge will be the righteous judge who never makes mistakes. And on that day, there's going to be a great separation. Matthew 25 and verse 46, we read that Jesus talked about some going into everlasting punishment and some going into eternal life. In this life, on the planet Earth, we know what it means to be separated from other people. Geographically separated. But on the day that the Lord Jesus comes again, we will understand the finality of being separated, not by miles, not by time, will be separated by location. Two contrasting eternal destinies. Some into eternal life, some into eternal destruction. For some, it's going to be a day of great happiness. For others, it's going to be a day of great sadness. For some, it's going to be a day of great reward. Look in your Bible in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Well, let's not miss the reward aspect of that great day. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, here we find what very possibly are the last words of the Apostle Paul that are recorded in the New Testament. I'm talking about in terms of the chronology of his life. Paul was convinced at the time he wrote 2 Timothy that his departure from this world was on the horizon. Look at these great words beginning in chapter 4 and verse 6. For I'm now ready to be offered in the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, verse 8, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day and not to me only, but in all of them also that love his appearing. Don't be confused and don't be perplexed or worried. Don't feel that it's not fair for Paul to get the only crown of righteousness. The Lord has enough crowns of righteousness for all of the righteous who will be there. Because in verse number 8, the message is, the promise is not only to Paul, but it's to all them who love his appearing. Now that's not going to happen for everyone. Because we also read on the other side of the coin, so to speak, we also read in 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 1, where Paul writes, beginning in verse number 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting punishment from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And so you see the great contrast, the crown of righteousness for those who are faithful and those who are not will not only miss out on the crown of righteousness, they will be cast out into a place of utter destruction, which reminds us, you know what? If there's one question in the world that I need to know the answer to, that is, what in the world can I do for my own sake, for my own life, to get ready for that day? Well, the Bible puts it in, in, in these words. In Hebrews chapter 5, 
Beginning in verse number 8, we read these words. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Being then made perfect, listen carefully, being then made perfect, he, Jesus, became the author of what? Eternal salvation. For whom? Unto all them that obey him. So, so the clear message of Hebrews 5 and verse 9 is Jesus provides something. What is it? Salvation. What kind of salvation? Eternal salvation. And Jesus provides or gives eternal salvation to what people? To all them that obey him. You say, well, nobody's perfect. Well, isn't that true? None of us are perfect. But here's God's promise. God's promise is if we hear the gospel, and we respond to that gospel message, the salvation that's available through Jesus. We respond to that message by believing that Jesus really is the risen Son of God. That He did die for our sins. That He did return to the glory of Him. That He will come again. If we believe that, and we turn away from our sins in repentance, and we courageously confess our faith in Jesus, and we're immersed for the remission of sins, God's promise is, I'll wash away every sin you've committed, and I will remember it no more. And then, once we're in Jesus, as we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us, continues to cleanse us from our sins and our unrighteousness. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen not because I say so. It's going to happen because it's God's will, and the Bible reveals it. There will be a day in the future of the human race, which will be the greatest day in our future. And we've looked at that day tonight, looking at Bible descriptions, looking at the certainty of it, the time and the manner of it, the significant events, the greatness of it, and how to be ready for that time. And so we step back for just a moment, and as we prepare to sing this song, we don't sing this song just because the sermon's over. We don't sing this song just because we've always sung this song. We sing this song as an appeal to each one of us to look into our lives and look into our hearts and say, am I ready for that great day to come? If I am, then God bless you. If I'm not, here's your chance to do something about it. If you need the prayers of the saints, or need to obey the gospel. It's God's invitation. If it's convenient, would you stand as we sing together?